I'm John Hall. This is Drink Beer, Think Beer, the podcast that gets to the bottom of every pint. And because so many of you asked for it, this is Augie Carton of Carton Brewing. Yeah, and then we go so, from there. Yeah. So, so I'm just going to... So I only need like one good minute and you'll slice that out, put it at the beginning and... Yeah. Oh, we got that. Yeah. That, that, that we that's, can do. All right. Yeah. So, and the rest could just be our usual level. <laughs> Perfect. I'm ready. Now it's like, quick, record. We might have just missed the best minute. Our full conversation is coming up next, but first, this episode is brought to you by Cigar City Brewing. I know most of us are in the throes of winter and settling into big stouts, but there should be a beer in our rotation that reminds us of the warm weather to come. Wedge Cut and is an American wheat ale with a cracker-like malt aroma and lemongrass that play on the nose after you pour it into a glass. Then, on the palate, lemon verbena and lemon zest flavors give way to a crisp maltiness punctuated with a snappy bitterness and a refreshing wheat texture on the palate. If you're already thinking spring and it's only December, this is the beer for you. Give it a try and pick some up wherever Cigar City beers are sold, or just visit the tap room in Tampa for a double dose of warmer weather living. Learn more at CigarCityBrewing.com. This podcast is produced by Beer Edge, the newsletter for beer professionals. A subscription to Beer Edge provides readers with smart and critical insights into the business and culture of beer. We talk directly to the players making an impact and report stories our audience has not heard before. The team at Beer Edge offers up a fresh and unfiltered look at the world of beer. Subscribe at BeerEdge.com. Hi, I'm John Hall, and this show has been a long time in the making. Despite co-hosting a show with Augie Carton for the last four years, we haven't had a chance to sit down one-on-one, and as someone who gets to speak with interesting brewers and beer professionals, he's been on my list for one of these interview shows for a while now. And judging by the emails and the social media pings from listeners of Steal This Beer, the podcast we co-host, it's something many of you wanted as well. So I sat down with Augie at his house on a Saturday morning. He opened up some champagne, as he does, and then some of the beers he's been working on. We talked about building out recipes, fine dining influences on his brewing career, and how observing interactions, tastings, and general curiosity from his father, mother, and their friends laid the groundwork on what he's trying to accomplish today. Each week on our show, I see him tease out flavors from beers that were poured blind. And while he's always confident, occasionally wrong, he does manage to bring some nuance to the forefront most of the time. And so I started off by asking him how he approaches flavor. Here's our conversation. When you taste a beer, where does your mind go first? Um, I, think, I think the answer to that is when I taste anything... I, I start to it's kind of deconstruction if you're if you're aware of the the modernist trend in cooking where you know I'm not so okay but but you are you are um it so it's gone through phases everybody first becomes aware of it when sauces turns into foams right and that gets lighter and lets the food get lighter right nothing needs to be as heavy that's kind of the beginning of the modernist movement and then what fascinated me most, or the thing that dragged me out of saute pan, kind of French learned cooking into this kind of modernist approach was deconstruction, where guys were saying, okay, what makes this dish interesting is these five components and their flavors. Let's take them apart and reorganize them in a different way, or yeah. rather than blending them all into one thing, make them the five parts so you can add different amounts to each bit. And that's kind of when my, my, when flavor clicked for me in a style. So let's make that like, I think 95, 96, I started really paying attention to, okay, what are the, what's going on here? Salty wise, sour wise, bitter wise, heat wise, you know, mouthfeel wise, take them all apart. How much of each is it? You know, how much of each bucket's full? Where's the balance? Is there balance? Da, 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 da. And then you start with the aromas, right? Those are the flavors and then the aromas. All right, yeah. I smell this and I can't find it in here. Um, from a beer perspective, I think that's why I get very differently excited about wonderful four-ingredient beers versus wonderful multi-ingredient beers. Adjuncted to hell or... Well, yeah. not, don't or say adjuncted to hell because you know I love some of those beers, right? Yeah. Like some of those really excite me and they're fun. But if there's only the four ingredients and I taste 50 things, the how did that happen is the intriguing, can I do that? What made this happen? What 
where's this Maillard component coming from? Is it the roast or is there some kind of rot going on in the yeast? You know what I mean? Where, where, where can I find these different things? And that becomes what I obsess over when I think about the flavor of those. Whereas if I say, oh, I taste syrup and the guy goes, I put syrup in there, that box is checked and I don't need to keep thinking. I'm right. like, okay, you can just put syrup in there. Or, oh, I taste, you know, it's like the difference between a coffee stout and a stout that tastes like coffee. Mm-hmm. This tastes like coffee and it tastes like this coffee to me. Is there coffee in it? No. Okay, cool. Let's think about what roasts and what ferment temp and how they coax different things out versus this tastes like coffee. Oh, we put this coffee in it. Then I've got like two questions left. How and when? You know what I mean? So that's everything I put in my mouth. I just start breaking down into that kind of web, if you will, of Mm -hmm. the corners and then the aromas and then how do they fit back into each other. What was important about 95 when you started really starting to think about food or think about food in a different way? Like you, you started saying that you said 95 as a... But that's when that change happened. Sure. Up until that point. So my first job when I was like 13, I wanted a polo shirt. My parents weren't going to pay for a polo shirt. I had to find the money. I was taking a karate class in Red Bank. And the guy that taught that karate class owned a... Asbury Park fried seafood bar. Okay. And he hired me to fry seafood and open oysters on Saturdays. So I was completely legally working. Yeah, under I was going to say there's, yeah, there's, but that's how I learned how to use a knife, right? One of the chefs there taught me how to get my thumb out of the way of a knife. And it was, you know, five or six hours on a Saturday and they paid me $25 for it in 1984 or five. Sure. Right. So, but my first job was back there literally learning how to fry, learning all the cheats you learn in a shitty little fry shop and learning how to do it better than others and worse than others from people who knew. So I've always, that's always been where I've gone to for, I need some cash. Like when I was leaving the movie business before I went to um, finance, that hour, that year I spent behind a bar because that's where I know and what's comfortable and familiar. Um, In 95, so I guess... There's a point where I'm working at a local, call it a Fridays for lack of a better term, but it was one owner place, you know what I mean? Yeah. It was, But it was that kind of menu, you know what I okay. mean? Trying to be everything to everybody. And we had just hired a chef that had just graduated the CIA. He was the sous chef and he was really excited about food. I was excited about talking to him. So I go to visit my very best friend in the world in Chicago. I'm driving his furniture that's been stored in my father's garage to his new apartment. And I say to the um, chef, I'm like, hey, I'm going to Chicago. Where do I need to eat? Right? What's the one place I should have dinner with my best friend before I drive back? And he says, Charlie Trotter. Sure, of course. But Charlie Trotter's was only open a year at that point. Okay. He was the newest, most exciting chef in America. This guy who had just graduated the CIA knew that. I knew nothing. Literally, my entire exposure to fine dining was the fromagerie in Rumson, which was the local fancy French place you went after graduation and confirmation and communion. Yeah. And in my mind, the best a restaurant could be was a fancy version of that. Sure. Right? There was an amazing version of that in New York. It was called Lutece or whatever. There was an amazing version of that in Paris. But in my mind, restaurants were linear, and the other end of that was that, and that was as good as it could get. Then I'm 23, four years old. I'm trying to go to this place. We can't even find Trotters in a phone book or anything, right? It's, it's, it's the kind of restaurant I now know exists, but at the time didn't. Right. We walk in, no shit, John, in khaki shorts and polo shirts. Hey, we'd like to so get So you got in. that polo shirt, huh? Yeah, got yeah. that polo shirt. Good. I did that work. Good. I earned that money and I bought that shirt. Um, <laughs> and I'm still doing that. I'm still doing that. Um, but, the, uh, but so we walk in and this, first of all, Charlie Trotters, for all of his genius and what he was in America, his level of service, probably only comparable to Danny Meyer, but with some neat obsessive compulsive disorder mixed in. Yeah, I'm going to digress here for a minute, but one of my favorite stories is he had these beautiful burgundy carpets, and he was annoyed by how the dust settled on them through service, and he hated those little the noise those little sweepers make. Yeah. So he'd make the wait staff wear two-sided tape on the bottom of their shoes and change it every hour. So every step they took through the dining room picked up that lint. That is caring about your customer's experience at a level that I don't think anybody's ever matched. Anyway, so we walk into that restaurant. We're like, hey, we'd like a table for two. And they looked at us 
like the morons we were. They're like, we're like, booked six months wh- in where's advance. The, where's the film crew that's uh, trying to yeah. get one over on them? Yeah. yeah, we're booked six months in advance. Um, and I was like, oh, well, I work in a restaurant. My chef said this was the best place in Chicago. We really want to try that. Like, it's late in service and we're full. He's like, but funny enough, I've just had a cancellation for next Saturday night, literally just now. So if you two want to come back, then we'll give you that table. I drove all the way home to New Jersey, worked a whole week as a waiter, adding shifts to get the tips to buy a plane ticket to go back to Chicago to try this dinner. Then we sit down and I have no idea what this meal can cost. In my brain, the most expensive dinner you can buy, like I was going to pay up. I had saved tips to buy this dinner. I had 150, 200 bucks in my pocket. Cool. This dinner started at 125 without wine. Yeah. But again, the service at Trotter's was amazing. And the waitress comes over like, look, we're way over our heads here. We can afford dinner. We'll even put it on a credit card, but we got to be careful. This wine list has thousand dollar bottles on it. Like we'd like to have some wine with the dinner, but if we got to skip, we got to skip guide us through it. And she miraculously went over and found a guy at a table having dinner with his wife, sold them a glass of wine from a bottle at a premium, and then just gave us the other three glasses out of the bottle for like the 75 bucks we had. It was well chosen to get through the whole menu. We got through the whole menu, had a great pairing, had eight or nine courses, and learned what was possible in the creative, enthusiastic end of dining. And that's when my life changed. But from there, Charlie was still kind of doing the American melting pot of French-inspired cuisine, right? What, today, the, today, the restaurant closest will be like French Laundry. But then in like 95, I become aware of places like Alinea and Mini Bar mm-hmm. and um, what's his name over in Spain, uh, El Bulli and Fat Duck. And I start buying these cookbooks and I start looking at these decompositions and recompositions and, you know science and different heat methods and all of a sudden it's just it's all i can ever think about and that that's why 95 is significant that's when i become aware of there's this level of fine dining then there's this level of creative fine dining you would become aware of beer much earlier than that though your dad was involved with beer writers and yeah so there were there was a bunch of 1970s awesomely enthusiastic aspirational food and drunk they're basically the 70s version of you and me right sure. like they just just with better they just burns. wanted yeah. to oh so much and and much better music <laughs> these guys these guys would play Kids they'd put today. on like dark yeah. side of the moon and taste everything coming out of milwaukee you cool. know what I mean? like that was a night that happened in my house all more four than beers once. Yeah. it was amazing yeah. but then that's at that time but so the kind of ringleader of that group was a guy named jimmy robertson he had the monmouth county wine society which was 20 couples that would get together to drink wines. He was way ahead of the curve. Like those Napa wines everybody's now losing their mind about and the tasting. He was buying them from Napa, splitting cases with my dad and five other guys, like, you know, moving out of, and, and they wrote a beer book, right? So it was the Great American Beer Book by Jimmy Robertson. And the tasting panel was that wine group. So my dad and mom hosted, like they're thanked in the book. I've shown yeah, it yeah. a million times. But they hosted all these people coming over and they were they, they were literally muling and sourcing. Like I remember if you go read the anchor steam thing, they're like, we could never get a good bottle. Mm-hmm. We we'd shipped it across the country five times. It was always old. We think it might be this, but every bottle we got was but this is anchor steam in eighty one. It's yeah. the only craft beer in the universe at that point. And they can't get a clean bottle of it. And then you look at people that are, you know, we make fun of Cass on our show for trading beer but literally my dad and jim robertson were desperately trying to trade for an anchor steam yeah you know and that's how that went how involved or how aware were you at the time of what they all were doing with beer and and did that play into where you are now though i think so the house i grew up in my mom my mom grew up in a pretty well-to-do house um I don't want to make it sound better than it is. The 80s depression screwed that house up. But my mom grew up in a house where she didn't necessarily get along with her parents and there was a cook. Okay. So she lived in the kitchen with the cook learning how to cook. And this was a real cook from the 50s, 60s, 70s style. So I grew up in a house where my mom could say, what do you want for dinner? And I could say cheese souffle. And my mom not only could make a good cheese souffle, she could make it in 20 minutes. Like she, if you know the components of a cheese souffle, it's not a daunting thing, which is what I learned from mom. 
But if, if you know how to build a roux and how to whip egg whites, you can make a cheese souffle in no time. She would. So that was one half of my life. And then the other half was my dad, who was raised by a... So my granddad was a guy raised on a farm who got himself a scholarship to Notre Dame and then Harvard Law, put all his brothers through law school, and then was raising my dad's. But but very much from that Depression era mentality where he was, you know, he was an appellate court judge in New Jersey. He'd been successful. And the only reason my grandfather and grandmother ever went out to dinner was to give my grandmother a break from cooking. Okay. Right. So he'd go out to dinner and he'd order the basket of fried chicken. He was not out there to learn something new, taste something new. He was out so that everybody had a night off from cooking. And the last meal I had with my grandfather down in Florida was fried chicken at a restaurant. That's how he lived. I remember a day where my dad comes home. I'm probably like seven or eight years old. Now he's gone through law school, paid his dues. He's there. He's got a job. And he's decided he wants to learn about this stuff. So I'm maybe, let's make me five or six in the story. But he's collecting wine with Jimmy. He's doing all that young, aspirational table lawyer guy. But he brings home like, I want to say 50, but I'm three, so five in the story. So let's make it 10. But there was a sale on lobsters at the local place, mm-hmm. like, you know, $2 each. And he bought 10 and was going to teach himself how to cook those lobsters. And there was a boiling pot of water. He'd cook a lobster. He'd bring it over the table, crack it open, make me and my sister eat it. And we were, you know, 70s kids. Seafood was the worst. And this thing was definitely far worse. Yeah. But he had to figure it out. He had to know how to cook a lobster because he didn't want to pay another guy to cook a lobster. He had to learn wine with Jimmy because he didn't want to pay another guy to know wine. Right? He He... He learned all these things. He figured them out. The best advice my dad ever gave me was you learn wine to save money. If you don't know wine, you have to trust somebody else's advice and their job is to sell you wine. If you know wine, you can save yourself, you know, tons of money over life. And and basically that's it for all of it. But like I said, they wanted to know everything. It wasn't wine and beer and food. It was they wanted to know everything that happened at a table. And the table could have been one of those mythical 1850s beefsteaks or it could have been, you know, one of these restaurants in the city. Yeah. By the end of the 70s, my dad's installed a charcoal wood-burning grill in our kitchen where there used to be a stove to heat the house. He used that chimney and he was grilling legs of lamb that he'd talked the local butcher into aging for three weeks because he heard read some article about aged meat. Yeah. So they're hanging legs of lamb for my dad to roast in the house, right? That's the house I grew up in. We were just learning how to do these things we were learning about. You know what I mean? Does yeah. that make sense? So it, that's, that's yeah. clearly who I am now. It's just what's new? What do I need to learn? How do I go figure it out? More with Augie Carton coming up, but first, thanks to this episode's sponsor, Cigar City Brewing. Get some wedge cut in your glass. Whether you're slicing lemons, a golf ball, or the end of a cigar, Wedge Cut's addition of lemon peel and lemon drop hops add refreshing complexity to the beer's effervescent body, herbal hop flavor, and cracker-like maltiness. Find it where Cigar City beers are sold and get some in your glass today. Learn more at CigarCityBrewing.com. And now back to a dining room table in New Jersey and my conversation with Augie Carton of Carton Brewing. What do you still want to learn? Everything. What are you, what are you trying to figure out? Like what Everything. you you seem to be a guy and and knowing you for as long as I have now where you you are continuously jumping to new projects. You know, I you're not like abandoning things as you go, but you're continuously building on new things and thinking about new things and where are you right now in that process? Um it so so now I've I've so I'm now 49, right? I'm probably older than my dad is in a lot of those stories. Um I, I've managed to liaison with people I find exciting in all these worlds, right? I, I'm on a first name basis with some of the chefs I respect most. I'm, I'm on a first name basis with all the brewers I respect most. I'm on a first name basis with a lot of the vintners I respect most. And now it's, I'm most intrigued by, again, the magic of all the things, right? It's, it's when we, when things come together where the, what's the phrase, the sum of the parts, the, you know what I mean? The, the greater than the, the greater whole, than yeah. the, the whole is greater than the sum, sum of the parts. parts. Yeah. So those, those are the things that are exciting me most now. I've gone through what can we put in it? What can we put in it? How can we put it in it? How do we change it? And still those projects come up, right? I just made that blue milk beer because I was reading a description of a non-beer and said that it work as a beer. It's not that that's gone. That's still fun. Yeah. 
And even when I do that, it's what's the cleanest, best way to make those flavors happen. But right now I'm about to pour you a beer I saved to do this, where we took, you know, like I call it Chekhov's gun, which I hope is a reference you'll enjoy. But like three years ago in the first act, I was just thinking about Belgian doubles and how boring I find beet sugar, which we call them brewing candy sugar. Yeah. It's like, there's gotta be a more interesting sugar that won't change much. Right. So I did a Belgian double with pomegranate molasses where dark candy sugar would go. So essentially that's a flat change. It's very fermentable sugar. Sure. It's one for one. Right. But you know what I mean? So, so it's not going to change flavor much, but the wrinkle is instead of the cleanest of sugars, beet sugar, there's this little bit of dirty fruity sugar. And will that add to the fruitiness? Um, Once we made that double, I was like, oh, this is fun. And now I've changed how I make dark Belgian beers, right? Now, anywhere there's candy syrup, I'm swapping out for pomegranate molasses. So I made a quad and then aged it in a fruit brandy barrel for a year. And I hope that that's, that's essentially to style. The two wrinkles are I swapped out one type of fermentable adjunct sugar for a different type of fermentable adjunct sugar at the same point in the process, and then aged it in a barrel. This is what would happen to those beers. And I don't think if you tasted it next to a quad, it would be significantly different. There's just this tiny little bit that makes it my beer instead of somebody else's beer. Okay. That's kind of where my brain has been for, say, the last year and a half, two years, is how do I take, how do I make these magical things magical but hours you know what i mean so sticking to the tradition yet still changing it a little that's where that's where my heart's been recently it's interesting that you're talking about brewing to style or staying like within style because i think a lot of a lot of folks my, myself included who drink your beer regularly or go to the brewery almost see a lot of what uh you've made in the past um as sort of anti-style as it were or trying to go against the grain. Like, sure, these are representative of IPAs or representative of stouts or representative of saisons or, or, or whatnot, but it always seems like you've been on your own path or trying to forge your own path as opposed to staying really close to the existing one. Am I wrong on that? Um, or can, it, it can also be both, but... So, well... Again, if you were going to be strict, you'd say what I did isn't too style. Right. Um, so the, I don't care. You know me. The most frustrating thing about being my friend, <laughs> the most frustrating thing about brewing with me, the most frustrating thing about knowing Ari Carton is I don't care. So I'm not breaking style to break style. Right. I'm not against the style. Um. So, so the style, if everybody's going to talk style, they're going to talk about Rahinskabot, right? You, you and I have had the conversation a million times that right. I see that as a tax yeah. and not a purity thing, and it makes me nuts. So I never consider those things when I decide what to do. But I think what I've always tried to do that's that you have to be in like this level of conversation to get to is, so adjunct used to mean a fermentable that was added to a recipe outside malted grain. Yeah. Right. And now it means anything you put in a beer. So the sad part is that's changed. I still think more often than not, I'm adjuncting in the traditional sense, not the modern sense. Right. So the way I try to describe that now, especially to my team when we're designing something is I, I want to be augmenting, not supplementing. Yeah. Right. So the Genesis for me always starts with something that was there, right? Is this in these flavors? Again, to use the stupid blue milk example, because I don't think I make a more ridiculous beer. That seems like a totally ridiculous beer to everybody, right? It's a bright blue, coconut milk, fruited IPA. Right. But what happens is I'm reading a description of flavors by a bunch of people that don't know what they're drinking. And I'm hearing the description of a beer style that exists. We know. I mean, the adjuncted milkshake IPA is a thing these days. It's not a thing I have much to do with, except when an idea like this happens. I'm like, oh, that sounds like one of these beers. How do we take what we know about that beer and make it taste like this thing, rather than just buying that thing and pouring it in? So even if you drink my blue milk beer, my hope is 
it's a beer that reminds you of that thing. I've augmented those ideas. And I only go to additions outside the four when I think they'll behave in a beer way or I can force them to behave in a beer way. And the problem is, all right, so we have that whole line of little Berliners, right? So 3.9, we call them Highlander Weisses because they're not Berliners. Right. But we make but them... named after where your brewery right, is. Where our yeah. brewery is, just like theirs would be. Um, so we call them the Highlander Weisses, and there's a whole bunch of different ones. But but the basic drive between behind all those beers is not to change people's idea of a kettle sour. It's to get the person in the bar, I mean our bar, who doesn't like beer. Mm-hmm. Like I drink wine. Well, our our style of those beers, the Highlander Weiss style. Do you find that there's a lot of people who still come in to a brewery who well, are combative in that way? Yeah. My, my brewery is a place our neighbors get together. Okay. Right? So the significant other of the beer person often comes by our bar for an hour before dinner. Right? Let's go to Cart and have a tasting and we'll get dinner down the street. Or let's go see this play and we'll finish at Cart and for a tasting and go home to bed. Right? Like... That's what we do. It's a date for a lot of people, and not everybody's as enthusiastic. But what I'm saying is, you've heard me say a million times that where wine kicks beer's ass is acidity, mm-hmm. right? Well, this is a small little acidic thing. All the fruit we've added to it in each idea is added way before even the lacto-fermentation and the sac fermentation, because we want it to just be part of a profile that is acidic and fruity, like a wine would be, Yeah. Right? The problem is, while we've been doing this, the world has been adding fruit juice to these little sours because that's also a fun thing. I don't want to be mean. If you've ever yeah. had one of those, pick your favorite passion fruit, right? Passion fruit's an amazing acidic fruit. Pour passion fruit into a glass of goza, you're going to be happy. Do it at the brewery, you're going to be happy. That's fun and wonderful, but so yeah. many people have jumped into that. This is a passion fruit drink that's been soured by a malt beverage. Versus what we're doing, that there's a lot of me explaining that although if you describe the process, I am adding fruit juice to a Berliner just like everybody else, our intention's very different. So it, it's it's what makes it frustrating is if you work for me and you're trying to sell it. And people want, who's our favorite guy from Queens that makes his raspberry sour glow up? Um, Brooklyn. No, glow up. Folks beer. Folks beer. I'm sorry, I'm Brooklyn. Yeah. So those guys make a wonderful one, but that is a shit ton of fruit juice added to a sour beer. Right. And that beverage is half fruit juice, half beer. Even if I put that amount of fruit juice into our beer, it's going to get completely devoured by yeast before it gets to the bright tank. Right. You know what I mean? Because I don't want it to taste like sour raspberries. I want it to taste like a pretty acidic beverage that suggests raspberries. That goes back to the earlier point that I wanted to to, to circle back on, though, of... Adding an ingredient, so say it's a coffee stout that just has coffee in it, and now you don't have any questions left to ask, versus something that is built to resemble coffee or to invoke a thought of coffee or you know, something along those lines. Um, what's the fun challenge for you, and where do you start? What's a good example of a beer where somebody has said, like, oh, let's do an X kind of, you know, IPA or an X kind of stout or something like that. And the examples that are out there these days are like the German chocolate cakes where they're just taking German chocolate cakes and throwing them in. Or here's our Boston cream IPA and we went out and bought well, just stop five dozen chocolate. IPA. Just yeah. stop a German chocolate cake because that's easy, right? So, so things I know about beer, right? And things I know about German chocolate cake. There's, it's usually cherries and fudge, right? That's what makes German chocolate cake. Chocolate cake, German chocolate cake. Yeah. And then I'm imagining a toasted something, be it coconut or an almond or something, right? Am I wrong on that? Well, there's like shaved chocolate on top or so something. The, yeah, there's some lines, kind of, yeah. some kind of, so, so what I'm saying is those flavors exist in the brewery. So you got to start there, right? You don't just take your regular stout and put German chocolate cake in it. You've got to start over with where you want to get, right? So let's start with, we're going to end up trying to land on cherries. So you got to pick a yeast that's going to get there. Right now, you could even use the house New England Conan yeast everybody's using because if you ferment that warm enough, it comes out very fruity. But you could probably do better with somebody's Martzen yeast or even like a 
whatever people are using for Scottish wee heavies, right? Because those are always fruity, right? And then you want to build a malt bill that's going to lean to the fruitier side of chocolate. So put all your basic patents and all that stuff in there. Get it black, make it thick, maybe throw some golden oats or even some flaked oat to body it up so it's got that cakey feel. And then you're going to want to add something fruity like special beer or something like that in some small amount. Yeah. Now you're most of the way there. Brew that out on a test batch. See where you've got. I'm pretty sure you're going to have the taste of cherries and chocolate and whatever. Without having to throw in. Without throwing cake. anything in yeah. yet, right? But I suspect as we try to build up the fudginess, we're going to lose cherryness. So now maybe you add some cherries. And if you're me, you want to add that candied cherry thing, but you don't want all the shit that comes with that candied cherry thing. So now you got to go into the kitchen with the cherries, right? So I'm going to buy those same cherries you would cook into a fruitcake, those green maraschino cherries mm-hmm. or something. And then I've got to denature all the shit they've done to them to make them that way. So I'm probably going to air dry them as far as I can. Then I'm probably going to stir them through liquid nitrogen to break down all the cell walls and get it all out of there. And then that's a fermentable I'm going to put in at the very tail end of fermentation. So when you're 75% of the way to finished, you throw them in, let the yeast eat them, let that give you some interesting phenolics and volatiles and some cherry. And hopefully you've just brought the cherry back up in line with where you had to dial the fudginess of the base. Then you don't need fudge and all that. Then you have a drink that's going to confuse and excite and change every time you drink it and be different from top of bottle to bottom of bottle. You don't have one where two ounces you go, oh, fuck, that tastes exactly like German chocolate cake onto the next one. Right. right? So, But isn't that the frustrating thing, though? Because a lot nothing's of... Nothing's frustrating, John. Stop thinking that. I know you get frustrated a lot. I'm lucky. I'm never frustrated. <laughs> if you were where I sat, then, yeah. Um, then I'd be frustrated right now. So, Stupid Augie. So, so much. <laughs> um, no, but... Did drinkers have this? been did you taste this i did yet? taste this beer that you just poured and i want to talk about it in just a second but it, it, drinkers i think have been conditioned over the last decade of being handed something in a glass and expecting what's on the label uh to to, to like match what's in their mind so if you say german chocolate cake and it doesn't taste like their version or their expectation of german chocolate cake because you haven't actually thrown you know all of the the stuff in there one you're going to get possibly dinged online which is, is more relevant than anything uh these days certainly less so today than it was 10 years ago i think but um, wait, wait you say that i, I are I you saying th- people take bullshit online in stride now or they take it more seriously now? i think they take it i think brewers are taking it more in stride and not necessarily worrying as much about the reviews as they were maybe five years ago where when untapped was really starting to take off, it was, Oh my gosh, like I only have one, one star on this, but I really love this beer. And when you start reading the comments, it's, you know, one star cause it's a Kolsch and I don't like Kolsch's or, you know, so I get that it. kind of thing. But I, get it. but I was an untapped user before I was a brewer. So, yeah. so I'm very in stride in that world. <laughs> but when you're creating these beers and how do you, are you trying to manage expectations? So, Yes. Let me say this to that. The answer is going to be yes, but not as much as my sales team and the people who like, so my brewers want people to love their beers Mm -hmm. and they don't love how happy I am to be like, oh, they didn't get it. Who gives a fuck? Move on. Um, They want them to be loved and they think I should work harder for that. What I will do is put the phrase like to evoke chocolate cake, this, 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 and this to evoke chocolate cake. And what you're right about in your question is, it says chocolate cake. It better taste like chocolate cake. So I guess what we need is everybody to go back to their seventh grade English class and learn what evoke means, right? It's not we need to not write chocolate cake on it. It's we need to teach the world that, you know, the, the subtleness of our language will help the subtleness of that beer, right? It's We're just like... So... Uh, God, I don't want to just beat drums that are annoying, but we make that that cosmonaut beer where I had was just trying oh, to that's make the, um, the Russian Imperial Stout. Okay. Right? With Is that the one that's based on ice cream? Ice cream. Yeah. It's not Astronaut based on, see, cream. that's the thing. It comes last. Okay. It's so I was building a Russian. There's a couple parts of that story where people were putting ice cream into my milk stout and that was annoying me. So I was thinking of rimming a glass with astronaut ice cream 
just to get the ice cream out of my stout at every dinner that ends with a stout float. Uh, this is why was that annoying you? How are you tasting my beer with a scoop of Häagen-Dazs in it? You're tasting Häagen-Dazs with a teaspoon of beer on top of it, right? It's a beer tasting dinner, and dessert is ice cream with beer sauce. Yeah, that's not a beer tasting dinner. That's ice cream tasting dinner. Um, and I'm fine with that. I'll go to your ice cream tasting dinner probably before I'll go to your beer tasting dinner. But it's a different thing. Yeah. Um, so I was trying to get them to get the ice cream out. So I was like, what if we whizzed astronaut ice cream in a Cuisinart, rim the glass, put the beer in like a margarita, mm-hmm. right? But at that same time, we were working on a big, angry, bitter Russian Imperial Stout because I was bristling at the fact that... Um, Russian Imperial Stout had came to mean barrel-aged instead of bitter, right? Russian used to mean the bitter stout. Yeah. And now it meant Big, the... Big, bold, bitter. Now yeah. it meant the, let's say, shit to it stout. And I was screwing around with all the hops that tasted like berries to try it. But when we were done, it had this wonderful, like, the three tasting notes were chocolate, vanilla, and strawberry. And I was like, how do we push them up? And then I thought, because freeze-dried ice cream is essentially lactic powder right yeah. it's it's what we add to beer anyway when we want sweetness i was like how much strawberry chocolate and vanilla would carry through if we used that instead of lactic sugar lactose sugar in a brew mm-hmm. and we're like just a little bit i was like just enough to make it taste a little bit like it like yeah it's like cool let's do that so we brewed it it took me three years to get it through the ttb because it was an approved ingredient we finally get it done. I put it out. I was like, hey, we added, you know, freeze-dried ice cream where you would... Now, nobody gets mad at a milk stout for not tasting like milk mm-hmm. because for 300 years they've known that milk stouts taste like stouts. Yeah. Change the milk to freeze-dried ice cream is the milk we added. And it was like, doesn't taste like ice cream at all. And I'm like, it's, meant, <laughs> it's not meant to. It's just meant to... We were just trying to adjunct and have fun with a fermentable. So there's a beer in the glass that you poured. I want to talk about this. Mm. We just talked about it. I described the whole thing. Is just, this the? This is your that's double. That's it. Just let it. No, this is the quad. Oh, this so is the quad. so oh, that sorry. double. That remember Chekhov's gun, right? In the first act, yeah. it's the double. Now it's the quad that's been put in a fruit brandy barrel for a year. Is there coconut in this as well? Nope. There's what I told you. There's the four ingredients of beer. Swapping out the beet sugar for pomegranate sugar. Dry, you know, ferment it. Throw it into a brandy barrel for a year and pull it out. Everything There's a really nice toasted coconut thing coming off of that, but yeah, it just comes when you put the ingredients together in that way. You talked earlier, by the way. Yeah, and you know I don't usually do this. Uh huh. I love this fucking beer. <laughs> like I re- like boat and this. <laughs> uh huh. Um, you say that about most of your beers. Um, well, I love them for nailing it. You know what I mean? Like, you've got to remember. When I set out on a mission, it's kind of always, could we? So when you accomplish that, if it does what you wanted it to do, you're like, yeah, we nailed it. It doesn't matter that whatever. This one, when you got to wait a year, when you got to taste it, it comes out, you're like, yeah, that's kind of exactly what I hoped for two years ago when I thought of it. Yeah. That it just, it's a little better than the four weeks of a normal ferment. Like, like, trust me, it's very possible. I'll walk into the brewery tomorrow and be like, you know, I really like that. So I've got this one brewer who, Loves the malt guy. And every time I walk in on Friday, he's just throwing a sack of malt at me like he's like, like I'm a drug dealer being, you know, rewarded for a good week, right? It's one of those little Ziploc bags full yeah. of malt. He just tosses it at me like, you know, hey, good job, buckaroo. And I'm, and I'm always eating it. And I can't even remember the name of it because it's Stark's malt. But the other day there was this great malt. It just tasted wonderful just eating it like cereal. And I was like, we got to IPA that. So he's going to work on a thing and we'll, we'll work on it. The, and then I'll pick the hops for it. But it's going to be the same kind of discussion. Where I'm like, hmm. And these are just off the top of my head. But what if we did Equinot Simcoe and Galaxy on that, right? I think that'll play to the fruitiness of that malt he's brought just off the top of my head. That'll be fun. He and I'll go back and forth. We'll get the other brewers involved. We'll get the salesmen involved. We'll have fun. We'll make a beer. I'll know if that worked four weeks from now. Yeah. And it'll delight me if it worked. You know, hey, that did exactly what we thought it would do. Those malts complemented those hops. It came together. It became a thing. We didn't need to beat the shit out of everybody with the hops. Right. Good job, guys. On to the next one. That's the same pleasure this beer's giving me. I've just been waiting two years to find out if this beer was going to work. So somehow it's a little more exciting. You know what I mean? 
to the restaurant, uh, back to restaurants, because you were talking about the customer experience and going back to your Trotter days and going back to, I mean, even I think anybody who listens to Steal This Beer knows you've been on uh, this really fun culinary journey in the last uh, last couple of years and traveling around. and My uh, whole life. Yeah, but but more so in the last two years as we've been talking about well, it Well, because I'm bringing show. my kids. Sure. Now it's now it's showing it to my kids. But you're talking about the customer experience as much as you are, um, or even in some cases more so than uh, what's been on the plate as well, or what what you know, you've been putting into your body. Beer still has a long way to go to catch up on that customer experience. I think. No, you, you don't think an Edison light and a tasting board is all the beer has to offer the world. <laughs> I'm pretty sure we're there, man. That's it. Yeah. Let's just, and, just and, hang some and, Edison and, lights and, and let's, let's get a creative way to put four little glasses in one big piece of wood and move it on. Sure. That's it. Yeah. Let's that's go. where we're at these yeah. days. But that's perfection, right? What's better than that? Come on. Walk, but walk me through. But, like, but how dude, do we, hold on. Yeah. You, you and I share this experience before, before okay. you get mad. So, so again, mad. I don't, no, no, no. But I don't want it to sound like it's the luxury thing. It's, it's what's the right experience. I don't think you and I have ever had better drinking sessions than we have at Beer Stop. Right, yeah. you and I session at Bierstadt really comfortably, and that is a pretty freaking industrial space. And what makes me sad is I don't even think they're the beginning of that kind of space. And I think a million people that have had you in my session would think you could go copy that space and have a successful brewery, right? From the design aspect, the design is just appropriate to their ethic. Their ethic is just appropriate to their beer. There's a comfort factor of the way they do things in their lagers. Right? If you want to be ridiculously geeky about lager, it's in that glass. But if you don't give any fucks, it's a much better version of the beer your dad drank. Yeah. Right? So you can be a guy who's, I just like beer. beer, 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 beer. That beer is going to suit you. You can be you and me, and you could talk about that beer. So there's the difference between, and we talk about this all the time, but there's a difference between beers you talk over and beers you talk about. Mm-hmm. The perfect beers play both roles, right? And that's one of my jokes about boat with you is you can talk over boats all day or you can talk about boat all day. Bierstadt does that with their hills, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? Or their slow pour pills. Right. You can really get in there. Each glass will give you something if you're looking for it. And each glass will stay out of the way if you're looking for it. That space is part of that. So what I'm saying is I feel like they're there, right? They don't need to worry about dust on the floor. Dust might make that experience better in their space. That's what I mean, and you got to know who you are and what you want to be. So, so that goes to what but I think that's in everything. There's okay. completely fraudulent copies of Trotter's Restaurant that I walk into, and they don't own me the way Trotter's did. It's having the right people, the right ambitions, the authentic inspiration, and not trying to copy somebody else's. That's who you need to be in everything to be one of the greats. Who do you think is great in beer right now? Who do you who do you consider to be? I love JC. I love him from Trillium. Yeah, I just I, yeah. I I I think there's a lot of people copying what what he does, and I think it undermines what he actually does. I think his enthusiasm, his excitement, it's all genuine. It's all real. He really does love pushing the things he pushes where he pushes them. He's really trying to make it better. He really does care that people love what he's doing. I, I just, you know, I'm a hundred percent behind him. Um, we'll start off with the people I do know. Um, you know, I think the other half guys are amazing at what they do, but I think part of what they do is business mm-hmm. and there that's not to be disrespected, but they're wonderful at it. Yeah. Wakefield, same thing. Yeah. Um, that's amazing to me. I wish I was as good as business as those guys are. Um, then there's the guys that are just the greats. Vinny. Yeah. Right. Like Ken, like we're talking about the world changing. We're talking about, and, and you keep making them, but what about this? And this is annoying a lot of guys and this is annoying a lot of guys. The greats, the guys who had an authentic mission that did it right, that saw it all the way through and stuck by their vision and didn't you know, not ignored changes, but adapted changes into their vision. Those are the ones, right? And and th- we might add one or two a year. Like everybody's mad that there's not 8,000 of them. We're still picking up four or five greats a year. Right. 
Now it used to be four or five out of a hundred, and now it's four or five out of a thousand. It's, it's harder than it used to be. They're to harder to out, find. Yeah. No, they're harder for us to find, right? Like, if you if you don't overdo your aspirations in your new little brewery, you can be Evan. You can be Watson, Suarez. Maybe. Yeah, Dan. You yeah. can be Lawson. You can be Mike Kane. You can be me. You you know what I mean? There, there's guys everywhere that are not be like, oh, hazies are so easy to make and people pay you $20 and, oh, this is great. Oh, bah, 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 bah. But guys are like, you know, when we when we make a beer that ends up hazy, it's because we wanted to make a beer that ended up hazy and we loved it. You've talked extensively about uh, leaving the movie business and uh, because you didn't want to be making somebody else's art. and That the, is true. And the brewery is... Do you not want more of this beer? Uh, I would like a little bit more of this beer. Uh, and the brewery has been your extension of the yeah, art you want to bring to the world. It's yeah. my creative outlet. One of the things that I, I think has made artists great in the past is that th- their ability to adapt, their ability to change over time, that you're not just going to be – you can have different periods. You can have uh, you know, growth in new ways and are constantly a- a- experimenting. Is that – how is the, the brewery, as we close out – 2019 different in your artistic vision than when you first started okay so when we opened we were solving problems i saw in beer okay right so so i've told this story a thousand times so i'll try to tell it quickly but i read an article in the new yorker about calagione yeah chris and i had been buying sixels of interesting beer that's your cousin who you my cousin the chris, my partner yeah. in the brewery chris carton and i we're buying sixtals of weird beers like Troganator and, you know, just all these beers. We were drinking through them, and I, w- I was just captivated by what was possible in beer because it hadn't been, right? Beer beer was a commodity that was excellently made or poorly made. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, there were chefs making beer, right? Caligione mm-hmm. and the Trogue Brothers and Allagash, and, and these guys were... You know, go watch my TED Talk. They were spicing with just the four ingredients, right? People hadn't gone adjunct crazy yet. But they were taking the four ingredients and using their hand deftly to... And we were fascinated and intrigued and we were loving these things. And then the hop thing came along. And no matter what, you know, Augie Carton may be a culinary brewer. He may be a hack brewer. He may be a whatever brewer. But ultimately, it's hops that brought me into this game, right? It's it's the love of that smell and that where's that coming from and a Dogfish 60 or a Nugget Nectar or a, doesn't it smell like weed and grapefruit and pine and, you know what I mean? And do yeah. you get this and do you get... But the problem was I was getting all, getting all those qualities from these 8% beers guys were making and I was ending up in terrible trouble. So I came home to my... Former brew partner, back then homebrew buddy, chef buddy, Jesse. I was like, how do we make a beer with the alcohol level of Coors Light taste like or smell like? Mostly I cared about the aromas. Smell like a beer, you know, up at 8%. Mm -hmm. And that's how we made Boat. And that's why we started. And I was solving for my love of tasting and its byproduct consuming. You know what I mean? Like, I, I want to taste more and consume less. Yeah. Um, and we did that for years. And then there were these other holes on the market. BDG, our table beer. Everything was either balls to the wall or nothing. And we wanted something in the middle. And our milk stout, it needed to be sessionable like um, Guinness, which is possibly the greatest session beer in the history of the world. But on the bread crumb toasty side of flavors i like better than their kind of sour apple steel side of flavors right so let's solve that and let's solve this and let's make a double ipa making true east coast double ipa in the style of highlight and you know uh 90 and all that but that speaks to the kind of weedier grapefruitier side of things we love and that's odub right and i think as a lot of east coast brewers follow the new england tradition I think we've gotten to a cool part of East Coast IPAs where those great ones are still those great ones. And I think O-Dub matters there eight years later. And I think that's exciting. But what came after was, okay, but 
ultimately I see brewing as cooking. What can I bring from my cooking experience to making beer ours? And that's where we, that was the next step. And like I said, now it's, it's trying to, where I went far away, where I was always sous viding things and dehydrating things and, you know, doing all this stuff. Now we know what those do. So now it's getting closer and closer back. You know, how can we stay within the things that are truly not traditional for the sake of tradition, but traditional for where those magic, where that magic was, right? Like if you listen to our other show, which I won't promo here. No, you should steal the spirit. I talk about it all the time. Um, But a Westerlaven has shown up on the on the show twice. Yeah, we don't Likely. know what they are. We're drinking blind. Mm-hmm. If we could just isolate those samples and play them, I want to make beers that do that. Where where both of us are like, but is it this? But is it this? Does it taste like this or does it taste like this? I'm getting this. I'm getting this. What is it? What is it? What is it? Maybe they put this in it. Maybe they put this in it. And that's the current tradition that you seem to be trying to get to the other end of. Maybe they put this in it, maybe they put this in it, but it's so subtle and I don't get enough of that for it to be that. And maybe they added this and, and then they show us that it's Westerly. We're like, oh, of course it is. Of course is. it is. Because it does everything. Right. Four ingredients, well constructed. So I don't ever want to go back to these are the rules, but I want to get back to that magic because I think those layers are what makes it a drinking beer instead of a tasting beer. Right? Like, People that don't, people that haven't gone as deep down this rabbit hole as some of us taste a Westerly and go, oh, that's good, but it's sweet and it's weird and I don't know that I would drink a whole bottle of it. And then there's those of us that have drank enough things where you're like, yeah, if I want- you have a third sip, you're going to taste burnt sugar and it's not going to seem sweet at all. It's going to feel like somebody, like a creme brulee with lemon on it, right? Where yeah. it went the wrong way. And then it's going to come back around and it's going to turn into toasted nuts. And, and you... I'm now to the point in drinking where I wish I had 50 Westerlevens to session. Yeah. To see what the fuck happens if we commit to not leaving the house and just drink Westerlaven all day. What does that 19th one taste like? Jesus. <laughs> but I want to make those beers. And this is, this is a, the one we're drinking right now is a step in that direction where it, it's, you know, it's fruity, it's poppy, it's quaddy, but it's not. Using the word magic, I find really interesting because that's not. It's not a word that I've heard applied to beer recently, or maybe ever. Now that I'm thinking about it, and when but, Cabernet but, when Cabernet from California, I shouldn't say, I shouldn't say ever because you know we used but, to think that yeast was magic. We used to think that it was right, a right. gift from the gods. Cetera, but what I'm saying is, like, when a California Cabernet, yeah, that had nothing but grapes put into it, smells like raspberries and pencils. Mm-hmm. That's magic. There's only grapes in there. That's the magic. If you put raspberries and pencils in that wine, you've taken the magic away. That's, I guess, what I'm saying. That's where you're going from now. You're, it's where I've always been. Yeah. It's how do we bend the magic our way, right? No magician does everybody else's trick. You're doing it. Like, Penn and Teller do the cups and balls, the Penn and Teller way. Augie Carton does the Belgian quad, the Augie Carton way. It's still magic. It's just our way of doing it. When you think back to what your father and the group of drinkers was doing. Are you trying to make me close your show with a tear? No. Okay. I, I, I would be genuinely surprised if you did, but as you go back and you, and you think about those formidable years where you were watching beer pioneers, you know, observers. Yeah. None of them were making beer. Okay. I wish they had, I wish their process had gone that far. I don't think it was, I don't think home observers and chroniclers. Let's call them that. Um, as you were, you know, sort of the fly on the wall and, and, and watching all of that, if you had the chance to sit down with them today to walk them through, I know what you're asking, but I'm going to, I'm going to tell you all these things I'm telling you, I witnessed, I've thought back on at the time I saw a bunch of guys having guys and girls like that's the other best part about this story was everybody and their wives. Yeah. They were all having so much fun. Like I remember a day where that group got together when I was like 16 or 17 and they were just frying little fish. Somebody'd somehow got a ton of fish and he had his 
you know, kettle in the backyard full of hot oil and they were just breading and frying little fish and putting different whites and beers with them in 1987. And it's just, hey, we're going to Jimmy Robertson's again, which hadn't happened in 10 years in my life because I was off being a teenager. I was like, I'll come to Jimmy's. These people were just having so much fun. And what was bringing them together was sharing, sharing the attempt to discover new flavors. That's what I'd want to do for them now. I'd want to give them these flavors. I'd hope they revel in them. And I'd hope I could add to it what I'd done to impart that information. Um, if I tried to, like, the, the joke I make, so both the people in that story, Jim and my dad, both died pretty young. And a couple of his daughters come in the brewery and drink with me regularly. And the joke we make, because, you know, our tasting room is just a couple couches. It's like your basement. Right. The two of those guys sitting on that couch telling me everything I'm doing wrong is the only part of carton brewing that never happened. And I wish it had, and it would have been, you know, kind of wonderfully magical. Are those the only two guys who could tell you you were doing something wrong, do you think? No, I think I'd listen to Sam. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Brindleson could probably tell me I do it wrong. Um, I'm not saying there's nobody. Yeah. There's, there's not many. Very, there's very few people. <laughs> I, you know, yeah. I don't think I've ever heard you make an admission like that. that like you'd no, be I, open there, to. There's a couple of people who could help me with my, my, my technique. Um, and I look for them every day. They're just, you know, it's just, I don't know. It's really hard to, to be a co-conspirator with me because so many people that do these things need them to be special. And the first thing I do is take all the specialness. So I'm like, okay, so you do this, great, moving on. And you know what I mean? So, so you need a certain level of, you know, confidence or understanding to get in a room with me, right? You, you know who we haven't talked about that is just wonderful to play these games with is the entire Equilibrium crew. Mm-hmm. They have no pride, no ego. They're perfectly willing to hear, are you out of your mind? As much as they are to say to you, are you out of your mind? They're very fun to work with. They have a extreme level of confidence and an extreme level of joy you know what i mean and they're just trying to make fun but they're doing it while thinking about why you know so you know he could definitely tell me yeah he, but i mean he's too smart to say you're doing it wrong but he would definitely say he'd to me, find a way i'll give you tried you know what I mean? i'd be like go on it's fucking evan watson can tell me how to brew and evan watson might be the worst brewer in the world all he does <laughs> is stick his thumb in things and wait 10 years he could still tell me that I'm sticking my thumb in it wrong. I don't know where else to go with this. And I guess point. we're done, man. Thanks, Thanks for having me. This was fun. This was fun. I never know how these things are going to go with you. You're the wild card. You're the wild card in my professional life. I've never done one of these with you. Well, no, but that's <laughs> the, I mean, like when I sit down with you, you're the wild card in my professional you know why? life. Why? Why is I that? don't take your profession seriously. <laughs> <laughs> Well, great. Thanks. That's a wonderful way to leave things. <laughs> I love you, man. Yeah, you thank you for having us. Cheers. It was a lot of fun. It was. That's the polo shirt-owning Augie Carton speaking to me from his house in New Jersey. Learn more about his brewery by visiting cartonbrewing.com. To hear more of the two of us each week, tune in to Steal This Beer, where new episodes come out every Monday at 5 o'clock. And before we go... I want to thank everyone who has liked and subscribed to this show and left reviews. It's helping new people find the show each day. And thanks also to everyone who has reached out via email with suggestions on the show. I'm always trying to make it better, and hopefully that shows. New episodes of this particular show are released every Wednesday, and there's some fun and interesting guests coming up that I'm excited for you all to hear. You can reach me at John Hall, that's J-O-H-N-H-O-L-L, at BeerEdge.com, or on Twitter at John underscore Hall. Nate Schweber does our music, Jeff Quinn designed our logo, Andy Crouch, well, is Andy. And if you want to learn more about advertising, you can reach Ryan Newhouse at ryan at beeredge.com. And speaking of that, this episode was sponsored by Cigar City Brewing. Say no to the cold weather with a beer that reminds us all that sunshine exists. Wedgecut is an American wheat ale with a cracker-like malt aroma and lemongrass that play on the nose after you pour it into a glass. Then on the palate, lemon verbena and lemon zest flavors give way to a crisp maltiness punctuated with snappy bitterness and a refreshing wheat texture on the palate. Have it with grilled fish tacos or just by itself in your favorite class while you dream about being poolside. Or get on a plane to Tampa, soak in those rays, and get yourself a pour at the brewery taproom. Everyone deserves a winter escape. Learn more at CigarCityBrewing.com. 
This podcast is produced by Beer Edge, the newsletter for beer professionals. A subscription to Beer Edge provides readers with smart and critical insights into the business and culture of beer. We talk directly to the players making an impact and report stories our audience has not heard before. The team at Beer Edge offers up a fresh and unfiltered look at the world of beer. Subscribe at BeerEdge.com. And that's it. That's the show. I'm John Hall. I'll be back next week to drink beer and think beer. I hope you'll join us. Thanks again for listening. Cheers. Cheers.